and good morning. It is Monday, July 20th, and this is Community Pulse, your local report on the coronavirus pandemic in mid-Missouri. You can catch Community Pulse Monday through Thursday at 9 a.m. on KOPN, and all episodes can be found online at kopn.org and on Spotify and Apple Podcast. Today on Community Pulse, our host, Dr. Elizabeth Alleman, will cover the latest on coronavirus vaccine development. Dr. Alleman is a local family physician and host of Your Health Matters here on KOPN. She joins us by phone this morning. Welcome, Dr. Alleman. How are you doing? Good morning. I think as well as could be expected in a global pandemic. Yes. Um, so um, I'm going to say that the overview... Can you hear me okay? I'm still on my AirPods. Let me get off of that. Hold on. Yeah, we can hear you okay if you want to stay on them. Whatever works. I'm going to go straight to the phone. It feels like then I know I'm on the air. Mm -hmm. Um, So before we get started, I'm just going to say that vaccine development is a stunningly complex um, field that has gotten way more uh, complex and cutting edge since the last time I looked at it very deeply, which was probably a decade or so ago. So I'm just going to say that I was really stunned. Okay, so to do the... The data, we're looking at um, close to 15 million cases worldwide with uh, 600,000 deaths and eight and a half million people recovering. The United States is back up to almost a little bit over a quarter of the cases in the world. We're at 3,899,358 documented cases, which means we're right at 4 million um, with 143,000 people, United States uh, residents dead with 1.8 million people recovering. And um, uh, according to Matthew Holloway, uh, Missouri is up to 34,823 cases with 698 new cases identified um, on Sunday, um, and uh, the rolling average, the seven-day average of positive cases is 835, still increasing there. Um, and, you know, we always have lower numbers on Mondays because there's less testing and less reporting on the, the weekend statewide. We have a 6% uh, positivity rate in our um testing, which is right at the limit of where we wanted to be. We would like to get that down. Uh, Boone County is, uh, hold on, we are up to 871 cases with three deaths. So, you know, I think we're all like, okay, we've got to flatten the curve until we get a vaccine or until we get herd immunity some other way. And now there's all these, this, this sort of um, this news that trickles in about this person has a vaccine that's into this phase of a trial, and I realized I didn't quite even understand what the news reports meant. So I'm wondering, um, I'm presuming that everybody else has a similar issue. So primarily vaccines, old-fashioned vaccines, were that you would inject an antigen which is a substance which, when it's injected into a person or another mammal, creates an immune response, specifically an antibody. So we would give, we would inject a, an antigen and we would get an antibody. And that antigen could be either, like originally with uh, Dr. Jenner, it was cowpox vaccine a virus because there was some cross immunogenicity with smallpox. And we noticed, he noticed that the uh, people who were in 
frequent contact with cow udders, milkmaids, uh, would get cowpox, which was a milder illness, and smallpox, but they then didn't get smallpox. So he actually deliberately gave people some, um, uh, cowpox disease. So we used the, we used a different bank, a different virus. And then through the years, what we've done is we've seen if we can do what's called a um, an attenuated virus. So it would be this is the way. Um, uh, uh, polio vaccine was for a long was that we took the polio vaccine and modified the laboratory like bred it enough so it got weaker and just kept selecting for the weaker virus. How we actually did that, I'm not sure. But then we had a vaccine strain that would give people a mild case of a polio-related illness. They would develop a, an immunity, an antibody, and then they would be protected against polio. Um, that has some advantages in that it really uses all of the body's immune system, but the disadvantage is that people would then get, could get sick from that, and so and it could actually get spread to people who are vulnerable. So we then decided that what we should do is do dead virus or bacteria or parts of them, or even the toxin they secrete so that the tetanus vaccine and the diphtheria vaccine are just the the poisons that the bacteria secrete. So we're not actually immune to the bacteria. We're just immune and can uh, can sequester and take care of the toxin that it secretes. And so um, we would give these parts of the virus or the dead virus or the toxin of the virus to the person, and the, the person would make an antibody to that. Okay, and all of that is very passive. The thing goes into your body, your body responds to it, the thing leaves your body, you're left with the, the antibody. Well, now a lot of these virus vaccines are what we call RNA vaccines. That is, we are not giving the antigen. We are giving the messenger RNA that codes for the antigen. And the idea is that the cells surrounding the vaccine site will take up that genetic material into their cell, inside their cytoplasm and they will make the protein or the, the antigen and then they will secrete that out into the rest of the body and the body will make an antigen for that. So we have these RNA vaccines and these DNA vaccines that actually we're just asking our own cells to code for these usually proteins but maybe proteins and sugars that are the antigen. Um, and then, um, and there are other ways. Then there are ways where we're putting the this genetic material actually into a different viral shell. It's so that it, that's the way it gets into the to the cell. Um, and then there are um, so in development right now. There's 153 vaccines in development. Several of them are already in clinical trials. So. Now I want to sort of review vaccine development. So initially vaccine development is like, hey, what would be a good way to make this vaccine? What, what antigen do we think we need to make an antibody to? What about T-cell immunity? How can we get that to happen? And so there's a lot of thinking and research and maybe trying it out on animal models. And then there's the preclinical part where we try it on more, more animal models. And that process of like designing a possible vaccine candidate 
typically takes two to 10 years. This time with, with the COVID, we're talking about the first one was available within six weeks of having um, sequenced the, the RNA from the, bank, the virus. So we've already got that way quicker. And uh, now we're, you know, whatever we are, eight months into knowing that we have this global pandemic and we have 153 vaccine candidates. Then the next step is um, to do clinical trials. And those, there are three phases of clinical trials. So there's phase one where we give it to 10 or 15 people to see what happens. Does something that we wish didn't happen? Are there significant side effects? What's the right dose? Do people develop an immune response? And if those are all positive, that is, we have minimal side effects and maximal um, uh, effectiveness, then we go to phase two clinical trials where we do a couple of hundred patients to see, again, refining the dosing, the interval, and see what happens. And then there's phase three clinical trials where we're trying to give it to several thousand people, ideally in a place where the disease is happening often enough that we can statistically see whether the people who are vaccinated are more likely to get it than the people who are not vaccinated. Because we want like somewhat close to a real world example. And we are not going to deliberately expose research subjects to COVID-19 in vaccine trials. So um, we have a handful of vaccines that are in phase two, phase three combined trials. So that's another thing we're doing now is instead of spending two or three years at each of these phases, we're spending a month or two and then we're combining phase two and three. Um, so one of the most common one, the most uh, exciting ones are um, the Moderna vaccine, which is a messenger RNA vaccine. And it is about to start phase three clinical trials, I think in the U.S. And then there's one being um, developed by Cambridge University Pasteur Institute with AstraZeneca. And they are starting, they have already started phase three trials in Brazil. There is a, um, it's a, a vaccine that's actually been improved, approved by the government in China in special circumstances, and they are prioritizing military, we think. And that is a vaccine that has RNA in it, and then it's in the shell of another virus, an adenovirus. Um, so we are really trying to get these vaccines. And there are some that there are some old fashioned vaccines that are just the, the viral particle and antigen injected into the, the human. And those are in phase two, phase three, there's one or two in phase two or phase three clinical trials right now. And these bring up lots of questions. We have never had an RNA or a DNA vaccine approved for use in the general public. There are some people who have been using RNA vaccines to treat cancer in a particular way, but that technology is different in some significant ways. And what we don't know really is we, we would have no way of knowing what the long-term implications are of injecting humans with viral 
um, uh, genetic material. However, what we do know is that when you get a viral illness, like every time you get a cold or you um, get influenza, uh, you have a lot of exposure in your, inside of your cells to viral DNA and RNA and that your body handles that in a way. And we do not believe, we don't have any data that says people who get a cold have long-term health implications from having had the cold except that they're now less likely to get that particular virus. So I, you know, and we have this operation warp speed, which means we're preparing to really ramp up um, where the government is ready to give these companies a lot of money to make a lot of vaccine once we have shown that it's effective and safe. Um, and I guess I should say, so then after we do the three phases of the clinical trials, then there's the approval, and then there's what we call phase four clinical trial, which is we give it to all the public, and then we watch and see what happens. And there's a lot of safety and effectiveness data that comes from giving it to millions of people that we really can't get from giving it to a 1,000 people. So that's my summary, Mallory, what I leave out. I'm wondering who are the vaccines being tested on? Um, you know, like, are, are these volunteers who are opting into these studies, I would guess? It's my understanding that these are clinical trial subjects that are recruited around universities. I am going to guess that there is um, a lot of enthusiasm and there's some people who are very eager to be in the trial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you had mentioned that there's 153 vaccines in development, and I'm guessing that's a global number, right? That's a global number. Okay. Yeah. Do you have any idea how many of those are being developed in the United States? Because a lot of what I'm reading, you know, is about access to vo- what the vaccines, what the access to vaccines will be like when they're actually available. And if another country is the first to develop, especially if they're not on good terms with the United States, um, you know, we might we might not benefit from that at all. And the same goes to if we're the first ones to develop a vaccine, our politicians and policymakers and, you know, all the, all the powers that be may not make that available to other countries. Absolutely. We have a lot of issues about availability and honestly also about um, requirement coercion forced vaccination. So um, there are uh, vaccines being developed worldwide Um and uh, I think as all of us are nearing an opportunity to vote, that thinking about how our leaders might handle this issue is an important one for many people. And I hope that people will notice that. Um, so I and I hope that I, in my opinion, I think what we need is um, clear, humble leadership and um, we need to start to do trust building with other nations. And I think that um we're sort of up against a, a legacy that isn't so great about that. Mm-hmm. So there's issues about international availability, and I'm going to guess, like many other things, that there will probably be several vaccines available around the world. That, again, the Chinese government already has one in production that they are using in limited uh, for special circumstances. And it sounds like, you know, if you're giving 10,000 people the vaccine, it's like you kind of already have one. Um, the other issue has to do with um, equity among developing nations. It also has to do with, like, within the United States, like if we're just talking about us or we, even within Missouri or within 
But then tell me who gets the vaccine first. Is it healthcare workers? That's kind of what I'm hearing the discussion about is that we would give the vaccine first to healthcare workers. And I think that it's partly because those decisions are made by healthcare workers. So that there's that. But I don't think that it's really with the idea that we know we're the most important people, although I'm sure there's some of that. But it's also the idea that if the health care system, if the hospital system collapses, everybody suffers. And, and what we've been trying to do, we've been doing all this flattening the curve so we don't collapse the hospital system. And if we could stop worrying about the hospital system, then we can start looking at, oh, well, maybe it's not the hospital system that's the limiting step. It may be our ability to uh, identify cases, test, um, and treat. And then the question is, would we then maybe um, vaccinate people who make sure that our food gets here and teachers and maybe lawyers and judges so we could open up the courts again? Um, these are these are conversations with where people who have lots of different opinions come to the table. Mm-hmm. And it seems like this Operation Warp Speed, you know, the government is giving, I think it was five billion dollars to different companies in the United States to develop these vaccines. And yet there's not much information, it seems like, on how much vaccines are going to cost and if those profits are going back to those companies or, um, you know, <laughs> what that's going right, to look like. Right. Our track record is really poor. So remdesivir, the only uh, pharmaceutical that has been, uh, the only new antiviral pharmaceutical that has shown any benefit to um, uh, COVID-19 disease, uh, was developed with primarily with NIH funds. It does not cost a lot to make, according to what I read on the internet. I've never made it, so I could I could be wrong about that. But it is priced based on the fact that it shortens hospitalization by three days. So a course of remdesivir costs about $3,000 because that is less than three days of hospitalization. And increasingly, pharmaceuticals in this country are priced not based on what it costs to make them, but what are the... Um, the uh, defrayed costs from taking them. So a new antibiotic might be priced based on what it costs the average person to miss another day of work rather than it only costs us 25 cents to make it, we'll sell it for $2. You know, so, so those are totally legitimate questions and I don't know what we do about that except I hope that we will all vote carefully and vote for leaders we trust to help us make those decisions well. Yeah. And I want to correct myself. I don't know where I got $5 billion. I think it's five five companies have been granted funds, but I can't right now find the actual number. Well, it, it probably is a lot. And one of the advantages of these uh, RNA vaccines is that they, um, they are um, much cheaper to produce. Apparently, what they do, and so they're coding for not the they're not injecting the whole viral viral RNA, but just the code for a particular protein that we want the body to make that was is antigenic. And so it's about trying to pick the right bit bit of the genetic code. And then once you do that, apparently making RNA is easy. Hmm. Making growing a virus is difficult. You need to you know grow it in eggs or in a cell culture of some sort. And so we have. Apparently, we have in reserve flocks of thousands of chickens being tended by people who are ready to have egg production be enough so that we can have the eggs we need to make the old-fashioned kinds of vaccines, which were required us to grow 
virus. Wow. But that we don't have to I know. We don't have to grow viruses in eggs and we do the mRNA. We can't apparently you just send the code like electronically to someplace and they put it in their little RNA synthesizer. I don't know what those things look like and I don't know what's involved in it. And then um, somebody somewhere else can just make a bunch of this vaccine and be ready to inject it. We also think that the, I think what I read was that the RNA vaccines do not require so much of a cold chain. One of the challenges is suppose you need to give measles vaccine in, say, Dubai. That's not a good question, good thing. A rural place in Africa or South America where it's hot where maybe everybody doesn't have electricity. You have to keep measles vaccine frozen. So there are like solar coolers that can go on a camel that people have developed just to get measles vaccine into remote places. So if we can do things that, if we can come up with a vaccine that doesn't require refrigeration, now it's more accessible to Mm -hmm. people in the world who live where it's hot and away from electricity. Yeah, wow. I have so many questions about those chickens, <laughs> those chickens you're mentioning. <laughs> what are those contracts like with those farmers, I wonder? I don't know, but I think it was Planet Money. One of those lovely podcasts I listened to did a story about a chicken farmer who is has the, you know, the United States. He tends the United States Strategic Chicken Reserve. Wow. I did not know we had one. Wow. Yep, but apparently we do. And I'll bet we have more than one. And I think Planet Money was like they couldn't say where this person was. Okay. Interesting. Wow. Well, if you're you're listening to this and you're a chicken farmer (laughs) that lives in Missouri, give us a call. (laughs) And you know anything about the strategic chicken reserve. Yes. Um, Again, it's like if you have to create the antigen yourself, then that requires other things. It also requires there to be preservatives in vaccines and adjuvants in vaccines and like, I am not sure how I feel about the safety of being injected with genetic material. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not trying to talk against vaccines here. I also have just really not been that great about being um, injected with vaccines that have trace proteins from, say, bovine calf serum or other components of the material that's needed to grow up viruses and other things in cell culture. So... Um, so these are interesting trade-offs, and we're all going to have to make a decision without enough information about whether we want to be vaccinated when there's one available. And it still, we're looking, the timeline is that if you are a person who has access to being a volunteer in a clinical trial, that you may be able to, the Moderna phase three trial apparently was set to start um, July 3rd or something, and they have now pushed it back to the end of July. So within a couple of weeks, we should be, people should be starting to be vaccinated in the United States. And I think they're going to do their trial in the United States, probably in some place like Arizona, Florida, and Texas. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you for this update. And I know we'll keep covering it as more and more information comes out. Um, is there anything else you want to leave our listeners with before we wrap up for today? Um, wash your hands, take your vitamin D, wear your mask. Um, uh, cultivated cheerful confidence in your ability to survive a viral infection. You wouldn't be here if you didn't already know how to do that. Yes. And um, yeah. who do we have coming on the show tomorrow? Okay. So tomorrow, oh my goodness, now my brain has, um, has, has, so tomorrow 
is Brianna Lennon. Right, Brianna yes, Lennon, our sorry, town Sorry, not to put you on you. the spot. <laughs> is, no, no, is coming, um, coming on to talk about the election that's coming up and absentee voting and voting by mail. And then on Thursday, um, there will be the director of the Columbia Farmers Market to talk about um, how the farmers market's doing and updates about that. Great. And I know on Wednesday, Jenny Chadwick will have um, a representative on from Karis Church to talk about their mask making initiative for Columbia Public Schools. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah. So it's a it's a great lineup this week. I'm really excited about things. Great. Thank you so much for joining Thank us you. today. Uh-huh. All right. Bye. Bye. That's it for today's edition of Community Pulse. You can catch Community Pulse Monday through Thursday at 9 a.m. and later in the day at KOPN.org and on our Facebook page and on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, which is very exciting for us. As always, we want to know what questions, comments, and insights you have related to coronavirus. Leave a message for us at 573-874-1139, email gm at kopn.org, or find us on Facebook or Instagram. Up next, we have an abridged version of background briefing and a brief music break. Thanks for listening to KOPN 89.5 FM, your volunteer-run, listener-supported, open-access, community radio station serving mid-Missouri. I hope you have a great day. Stay safe, stay healthy, wear your mask, stay informed. Talk to you tomorrow.